welcome to the Being a Whole Person podcast. I'm Rebecca Haas, a pianist, composer, and creative wellness coach, and my job is to help you self-compassionately grow your creative practice from a supportive foundation of wellness. This podcast features honest conversations, resources, inspiration, and tangible tips to help you cultivate more balance and ease in your work and life, follow through on your goals without constant hustle, and also feel like a whole person in the process. I'm so glad you're here. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Being a Whole Person. Today we're going to talk even more about the book Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self by Manoush Zamarodi, which is such a fabulous book. Uh, Go back to last week's episode to hear the first five if you haven't already. You don't necessarily have to listen to these in chronological order, but I kind of give you an intro to the book in that episode, so it's probably best to listen in that order. But first, a couple announcements. The Support Your Creative Focus Bundle is still available. I'm offering this to celebrate the third birthday of Coaching for Creative Wellness, which was two weeks ago today, and we're taking the whole month to celebrate. So what's in the bundle is my ebook, Fuel Your Creative Work with Compassionate Productivity, which is a PDF workbook for creating a humane, sustainable to-do list that can evolve with your energy level and make sure that you have space in your schedule for rest, for breaks, for things that replenish your energy because we can't work constantly. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it is getting darker and darker every day. The holiday season is stressful. There's a lot demanding our attention and our energy right now. And these tools are so helpful. And because it's easy to download something and harder to actually put it into practice, with the bundle, you get a 45-minute one-on-one coaching appointment with me. And we'll go through your schedule, your to-do list, check it out, see what is there that needs to be there, maybe what's there that doesn't need to be there, and we'll make an actual concrete plan and perhaps tweak your schedule a little bit to put your goals into action. And if you're not sure what to prioritize and what to focus on, we can talk through that too. But most importantly, you will have a plan to work on your most important creative work without burning out, with room for rest. And then you also get a month of Compassionate Creativity Coworking Club membership. So you have four dedicated times on your calendar once per week on Tuesdays, 3.30 to 5 p.m. Pacific. That specific time is set aside for this most important work, this sacred commitment to yourself. So let's make some space for these important things that are going to replenish your energy and fuel your best creative work so that you really know you're moving toward what you want to be doing in life. That's what we all want, right? And then announcement number two, of course, rate and review the show. Thanks to the modern world that we live in, the old algorithm is really important in helping the show be found by more people. And I want to spread this message of being kind to yourself and your creativity, of replenishing your energy, treating yourself like a human as you do all these things. So the more that this podcast gets out, the more we all get to do that. And it doesn't need to be anything super long. 
You can just write a few sentences or just pop some stars in there. It all really helps and is really appreciated. Thank you so much. So let's get into more takeaways from Bored and Brilliant. Number six, games and gamifying can help your mental health. A lot of times we think about video games or games in general as a waste of time or something that takes you away with what's takes you away from what's really important. And there's some really interesting research referenced in Bored and Brilliant by Jane McGonigal, who's the director of game research and development at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto. And she wrote the book Super Better, which is all about making life achievements and to-dos and all this stuff into a game. She also created a game called Jane the Concussion Slayer to help herself recover from a concussion. And having little things to check off and making it into a game makes you want to do things more. Games allow us to improve at things. And when we're doing that, we experience excitement. We experience having more physical energy, pride in our accomplishments. It also really helps us create a sense of certainty. Like if I know I'm going to be able to accomplish something, I'm more likely to want to do that than some more amorphous creative goal that can feel futile. The endowed progress effect, like I talked about in the last episode. If we know that we're going to be able to complete something, our brain is more likely to make us want to do it. And we can use that to our advantage when it comes to getting things done. So in the book, they define a game as an unnecessary obstacle where the goals you're trying to achieve are harder than they need to be. And of course, that is created artificially within a game. And you also have things that might feel harder than they need to be in your real life too. If you combine those feelings with some optimism, a sense of common ground, shared attention, that means for some people, Games make reaching out to their fellow game players easier than connecting with other people in their daily life. And if you reverse all of those conditions, that's basically the clinical definition of depression. The same two regions of the brain that are chronically under-stimulated when you're depressed are hyper-stimulated when we play video games. So it's really natural that people want to self-medicate depression and anxiety with video games, and it can become addictive. The number one indicator of whether video games are going to make a person's life and mood better or have a negative impact is if the person sees the games as being meaningfully related to reality. So the challenge is to enjoy or identify with the actions in the game so that when you stop playing, you continue to love and enjoy them. Playing video games for short bursts to elevate your mood and level of physical energy and then getting back to your everyday life in a more positive state. So you can set a timer. They say to be zen with your gameplay, set a timer for 20 minutes. And then when you're finished with the 20 minutes, you go on and do something else. That can be hard to do because video games also want to keep us playing. But Many video games have actually been shown to have similar effects to meditation in terms of what your brain state is like and how it's transformed. Of course, not every game is like that. Some can be very stressful, but you can kind of pick and choose based on what kind of mental state you need to be in that day. 
They also suggest that to squash cravings, stop an anxiety attack, or remove ruminating thoughts, like when you're anxious, you can set a timer for 10 minutes and that dose of video game can be really helpful. So again, it's kind of like going back to that food metaphor. The moderation of it is what allows it to be helpful. Dosage is important. It's also not super helpful to berate yourself for time spent playing games, because if this is an affordable tool to alter your brain state in a non-pharmaceutical way without side effects, that actually can be a really great thing. And I'm not here to prescribe anything in particular, nor am I here to be your mental health professional, but just food for thought. Jane McGonigal also recommends that people who feel addicted to games focus on what the abstract qualities in these games are that really appeal to them, and then look for those qualities in other aspects of real life. So like with anything, it's about knowing what your intention is behind it. And if you feel like it's too much, then it's probably too much. Trust yourself. You know more than you think you do. And if it feels silly to you to make something into a game, that's okay. I have used the app Plant Nanny for drinking water, which I know I've mentioned on the show before. And it's basically like a little cartoon plant that you feed water to however many times a day you can set the size of the cup, you know, how many ounces, and it goes toward your daily goal. And then your little cartoon plant grows and it grows. And then you get to put it in the garden and collect seeds and all these little things. And it's like, part of my brain was thinking, why do I need all this stuff just to drink water? But it works. So if you need a game to make you do a healthy thing, and that's what works, I think that's awesome. Takeaway number seven, embrace boredom with boundaries, and you don't need to feel shame or guilt about it. So to really take control of our bored time in a business setting, we can't feel guilty about it. If you're doing creative work, you're going to need lots of mental space. And you know that if you sit down and you're like, I'm going to get an idea today, that that is, of course, the day in which no good ideas will come to you because we're not totally in control as much as we would like to be. The ideas come when they would like to come. And on the outside, this might look like inactivity. It might look like we're lazy or just kind of weird to other people, but really we know that's part of the process. So that space might be what leads to you doing your best work. No one can shame you about this. And it can be really tempting to look for a solution to tech overload that is technological in nature. And yes, that can help like those apps that reduce your ability to access certain websites or certain apps on your computer or your phone. But when it comes down to it, it's always an emotional or psychological issue, right? And it comes down to having more self-awareness. So how much boredom do you really need? If you don't feel like you have enough, check in with yourself about where you could add in some white space in your schedule, where you could take a long walk or do some kind of tedious activity in between a more stimulating activity so that you really get more space for mind wandering. And really, if you're working on any new discipline or endeavor, it's good to create 
targeted goals. And it's also really good to experiment with strategies because the first time you try something, that might not be the way that it works best with you. You can always make agreements with yourself to set boundaries. It's not like you have to have idle time for days on end. You can do it in whatever pocket of time works for you. And it isn't going to cause you to miss out on everything else in your life. It's a tough sell sometimes to commit to this intangible activity when we can't see the immediate productivity in it, but we have to trust rest. We have to trust boredom to get some of these insights and allow your brain to go into that state. Takeaway number eight, noticing is the first step in creating. And it's not as romanticized as the actual work of creating, but we need to collect inspiration. We need to collect external things that we notice to get an idea sometimes. You might want to imagine what someone else is thinking about. You might want to zoom in on a detail of something that isn't the most obvious. And crucially, if you are glued to a screen, you might not be able to notice as many things. So getting out in nature, I usually do have my phone with me on a walk, but I don't have it out unless I need to look at it for something or unless maybe I want to use an app to identify a plant or something like that. But for the most part, I'm looking around me. I'm in the world. There's a really cool example of this in the book where the performance artist Marina Abramovich did a show called Goldberg in 2015, and it was a performance of Bach's Goldberg Variations. But before the performance, the audience had to come in and lock their phones in a box or, you know, turn them in somewhere. And then they sat for 30 minutes with noise-canceling headphones on in silence before the performance even began with the idea that if you're running in distracted, if you're still looking at your phone, if you're still texting somebody, you're not really ready to hear anything. You're not really ready to have a deep experience of taking in that experience. Marina Abramovich tends to be on the more dramatic side of things, but she says the only way for us to survive is to go back to simplicity. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. Sometimes we're afraid of what we might find when we let our minds wander, right? Like when we have to be alone with our brains, there might be a lot of scary thoughts in there. And that can make it less appealing to just sit back and see what's in there. And of course, if you're not letting your brain do that, you're missing out on all those potential creative insights. The futurist Rita King, who I mentioned in the last episode, says her secret to putting herself in the minds of people who live in the future is being radically present, which is a pretty interesting concept to think about the future and the present coexisting at the same mental spot. But she achieves this by recording all the little things that make an environment unique to itself. So it all comes back to being present. And sometimes the biggest ideas actually start with tiny observations. So maybe you don't have to worry about the big ideas. You just have to worry about collecting whatever ideas you can find, even if they're tiny, and your brain will take care of the rest. It's always busy making connections and evolving your idea into something else. 
You just never know what little tiny idea is going to maybe even latch onto something else that you've already realized. Who knows what might happen? So getting deeper into the topic of being present, takeaway number nine, there are different types of mindfulness which can help us focus. Often people have this rigid definition of what meditation is or what mindfulness is. They imagine sitting on a cushion in silence or like a whole weekend of a meditation retreat or something like that. That stuff is great, but meditation and mindfulness can look so many different ways. It's really just paying attention to what's going on where you are. And something really interesting that they mentioned in the book is that meditation in that traditional sense is actually more rigid and does not encourage mind wandering because you're encouraged not to follow your thoughts. You're encouraged to just observe them and let them go. And so that type of meditation is actually kind of uncreative, but there are different ways you can be mindful and different things to be mindful of. So I'm not saying that meditation and letting go of thoughts is a bad thing, like returning to the breath and all of these practices are great for reducing anxiety and they're great for helping you tame your mind and learn to focus. That's awesome. It's just that that's not directly creative as much as sort of an open awareness type of meditation. The type where you're encouraged to notice your experiences or your senses. That stuff is what really gets your mind wandering going and making you open to any thoughts in a more non-judgmental way. So it might be cool to play with different kinds of mindfulness practices. I really like a listening walk where you observe everything that you hear as you walk. And I know I'm not always paying attention to all of the auditory things that come into my mind. Could be cool to write them down and that might lead to something creative later. Can be just for its own sake too, of course. And there's a beautiful kindness meditation that they mention in the book that is a 10 second practice where you bring a person into your mind, probably someone you care about, and you think, I wish for this person to be happy. And you think that for three breaths in and out, and then you repeat, do this every day. And then your wish for other people's happiness turns into a habit, which will also bring you happiness too. And bonus, you can try to wish happiness for people that you find to be harmful. And that can be like a next level compassion practice, but start with someone you care about already. And that's going to be much easier. It will spill over into other things. Takeaway number 10, we have to step back from the noise in order to be able to prioritize. And this idea has been central to my work with my coaching clients for a long time because I tend to work with people who are very ambitious, doing a lot of things, and are in a state of overwhelm and possibly burnout. And when you're in that state of overwhelm, you might be too stressed out to ask yourself if what you are doing is indeed the most important thing you should be doing, and if that thing is getting you closer to what your big goals are. And I'm only using should within the context of what you believe you should be doing, not an external should from me or anybody else. But we all know those moments, right, where we're kind of busy, but we're not actually productive. 
we're just kind of reacting to things around us or doing things so that we can feel busy, but they're actually not as important as something else. So you might have to take some mental space and some extra rest time to get to the point where you can actually judge what is important. It takes some slowing down to get there. And Greg McGowan, who wrote the book Essentialism, was quoted here as saying, technology is a great servant, but a poor master. And he's saying that his biggest hurdle isn't actually information overload, like we think it is, but opinion overload, like taking in other people's opinions about what you should be doing or what's important. And we don't even realize that we're taking in so much while we're scrolling through Instagram, but that can be happening. You're subconsciously taking in all of these messages. So being more intentional about your internet diet and what you're taking in can help you avoid having just too much noise. And I should also mention, which I mentioned on the podcast before, that the word priority was never plural until recent times. Priorities, plural, did not exist because priority was this is it. This one thing is the most important. I also learned that in the book Essentialism. And it's kind of unthinkable to most of us to say, I only have one priority in life. Maybe not to you, but those of us who like a lot of different things have a lot of different priorities. And inherently that has a lot of juggling. So there's a lot to sort through there, potentially. In conclusion, we do have to let ourselves be bored to be brilliant. And small progress is still meaningful. It's really interesting that at the end of the Bored and Brilliant Challenge, the participants only decreased their time spent on their phones by six minutes or one less pickup of their phone during the course of a day. And that could sound kind of dismal, like only six minutes? Like, really? We did all this stuff and that's it? But a psychologist commented on this and said, it's really not clear to me that six minutes isn't meaningful because in order to fix a problem, first you have to realize it's a problem, right? And then you have to figure out the source of the problem. So going through these challenges really helped people realize what the source of their technology addiction and distraction is. And when it comes down to it, it's an issue of motivation, We need to want to get off Facebook or Instagram in order to do it. And then we also have to believe that we can. So go ahead, believe in it. You can do it. And if you don't yet, you can practice believing in it. I believe in you. I believe in your capacity for growth. And that capacity for growth is really, really exciting. This episode is not me shaming you for any tech addictions that you may have, but just encouragement that if you feel like you're spending too much time on things that don't matter to you, that you absolutely do have the ability to turn that around and that you don't have to do huge actions in order to have an impact on your life. So if you need my help in sorting through any of this stuff, check out the Creative Focus Bundle Check out some of my other resources. You can book a free call with me. I'm always here to help and I'm always rooting for you. So have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Being a Whole Person. 
The music you're hearing right now was written and performed by me, supported by Tim O'Keefe on percussion. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you shared with a friend, subscribed, or left a rating and review, which will help more people find the show. You can find show notes at coachingforcreativewellness.com slash podcast. See you next time and be kind to yourself.